Weather Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Todd Wicks. The Trump administration recently decided to move researchers from the United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA, to the Kansas City area. This action may cause the resignation of over half the staff selected to move, meaning the department would lose many researchers. Staff have until midnight on Monday to decide whether to join the department as it moves its research branches from Washington, D.C., there is no building in Kansas City to receive these scientists. Critics see the move, set to be completed by the end of September, as an example of the Trump administration trying to sideline scientists and researchers. Administration officials denied that, calling it a cost-saving move intended to have researchers closer to the farmers. The decision comes as other agencies are also planning to relocate parts of their teams. For example, the Interior Department is expected to announce new headquarters for the Bureau of Land Management on Tuesday. Honeybees, which pollinate one-third of the crops we eat, are in severe decline. Despite this, the EPA is expanding the use of sulfoxaflor, a pesticide the agency itself considers highly toxic to bees. Sulfoxaflor's use has long been debated. It was temporarily de- banned after a lawsuit by beekeepers and environmental organizations in 2015. In 2016, the EPA altered its instructions for how to use the pesticide, claiming it would reduce its impact on bees. Sulfoxaflor will now be permitted for use on certain crops for the first time. It was approved for limited use under the Obama administration. The United States was the world's largest national carbon dioxide emitter until 2006. That year, China surpassed U.S. emissions. After that, U.S. emissions declined until 2017. They have increased since then. U.S. electricity production from coal sources has dropped in recent decades from over half in 1992 to about a third in electricity production in 2015. At the same time, however, the United States has become the world's largest producer of crude oil. The U.S. has also significantly ramped up natural gas production and usage. Though natural gas use results in relatively less CO2 emissions, the methane escape during its production and extraction is high. A third of our electricity now comes from burning natural gas. The atmospheric carbon dioxide is increasing about 3.5 parts per million per year. The atmospheric CO2 now stands at 411 parts per million, higher than at any time in the past million years. 
On July 10th, over 7,000 colleges and universities worldwide declared a climate emergency and initiated a three-point plan for tackling the crisis together. The declaration was issued as a letter organized by two collegiate climate action organizations and the UN Environmental Programs Youth and Education Alliance. The three-point plan goes like this. Universities will commit to being carbon neutral by 2030 or 2050 at the latest. They will also direct more resources toward climate change research and skill development. Finally, they will improve sustainability education as well as their community and campus outreach programs. The declaration came in response to months of student demonstrations at all education levels. The movement's goal is to encourage governments and institutions to enact bolder policies on the climate crisis. According to a new study published in the journal Science, around 2.2 billion acres of land worldwide would be suitable for reforestation. This could ultimately capture two-thirds of human carbon emissions. The Crowther Lab at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology investigates nature-based solutions to climate change and in their latest study, the researchers showed for the first time where in the world new trees could grow and how much carbon they would store. According to the lead author, Jean-Francois Bastin, the study excludes existing cities and cult agricultural areas. Professor Thomas Crowther, founder of the lab responsible for the study, also commented on these findings, saying that they were unexpected and also encouraged swift action in order to allow newly forested land to mature and become a new, a m more useful carbon sink. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Juliana Daly. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976. Offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic, with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech State Ivy Tech campus. Now it's time for Get Out and Hike. This is Get Out and Hike, and I'm Jan Walker. Hello, this is Stacy Duke. I'm the District Recreation and Wilderness Manager for the Hoosier National Forest. And I'm here today to talk a little bit about trail opportunities within the Hoosier National Forest. And I will be specifically talking about the Brownstown Ranger District trails. And in fact, the Hoosier National Forest is split into two separate districts. And Brownstown is the Northern District. And within that district, we have approximately 90 miles of multiple-use trails. We allow for horseback riding, mountain biking, and hiking use, keeping in mind that some trails may be limited to one or two of those uses and not necessarily all three. A couple of examples of trail systems on the Brownstown Ranger District that would meet the multiple-use category for all three uses are the Hickory Ridge Trail System and the Shirley Creek Trail System. Um, although primarily used by horseback riders, those trail systems, of course, also allow for mountain bike use and hiker use throughout. Um, the Hickory Ridge Trail System is about 47 miles 
give or take, and the Shirley Creek Trail system is approximately 20 miles. Both systems have loop opportunities. You're also welcome to go in on a trail as far as you want and simply turn around and come back. Lots of opportunities for viewing wildlife and just enjoying uh, south-central Indiana woods. We also have other trail opportunities, such as the Pate Hollow Trail, which is a popular trail for primarily hiking. It is a hiker-only trail. That's something to keep in mind whenever you are going out to the Hoosier National Forest. Always ensure you're abiding by all of the rules and regulations. Back to the Pate Hollow Trail, being a hiker-only trail, it is popular because of its close proximity to Bloomington. Uh, We do see a lot of students coming down to hike that trail, It has a couple of different loop options, one of which takes you to the edge of Lake Monroe. How difficult is the Pate Hollow Trail? The trails in general, we we tend to indicate that they are moderately difficult, and that's a little bit of a safety net for us because it really comes down to individual skill level. We certainly recommend that folks keep in mind that Even though two miles or four miles or even six miles may not sound all that long, when you're out actually in the woods on uneven terrain, going up and down hills, typically folks wear out quicker than they expect themselves to. So it's always a good thing to keep in mind your own personal uh, ability when going out in the forest. How about the Harden Ridge area? That, too, is pretty close to um, Bloomington, and I hear a lot of people talking about it. Yes, uh, Harden Ridge Recreation Area is our largest developed recreation area within the Hoosier National Forest. We have 200 individual campsites, um, some of which are available for reservation, some of which you can come in and just walk in, and if they're available, you can utilize them. There are also a couple of trail opportunities within Harden Ridge. We have a trail called the Harden Ridge Trail, which essentially parallels the main road, but does give you some opportunities to get away from the road and into the woods. We also have an interpretive trail in that recreation area that has educational trail side signage. Um, This is a great trail for kids to go on with parents, of course, or with family and adults. It's about 1.2 miles round trip. However, keep in mind the last couple of tenths of a mile is very, very steep, so you have to be prepared to get your heart pumping on that trail. (laughs) Um, But Hardin Ridge is located just a couple miles off of 446, so it can be accessed off of the main road of 446. Please keep in mind that trail permits are required if you are accessing our trails by horseback or by mountain bike. We do not require trail permits or any form of check-in, check-out for hikers. Um, But if you are utilizing trails on the Hoosier National Forest, you must beforehand purchase a trail permit. You can get a daily permit, which is $5, or you can purchase an annual permit, which is $35. Permits can be purchased at both of our district offices. One is located in Bedford, and the other one is in Tell City, down near the Ohio River. Um, We also have several vendors throughout the state that sell our trail permits. And you, of course, can access more information about this on our Hoosier National Forest website, which is www.fs.usda.gov backslash Hoosier. And you're also welcome to Google the Hoosier National Forest and obtain the address that way. Thank you very much for meeting with me today. Thank you very much.
In today's feature report, WFHB's Norm Holy talks with Dr. Deepak Ray about climate change and crop yields, both here in Indiana and in developing nations. Dr. Ray researches food security on both a local and global level as part of the University of Minnesota's Global Landscape Initiative. As part of the initiative, Dr. Ray has contributed to research published at earthstat.org. According to the website, earthstat.org provides regional data sets researchers hope will help solve the challenge of feeding the world while also reducing agriculture's impact on the environment. So my first question is, given climate change, is it impacting food production around the world? Yeah, yes. It is already uh, impacting food production around the world. So in our study, we actually first try to figure out what is the effect of climate change on crop yields. And to do the food production part, we took some extra steps. How is food production then doing around the world? Uh, that is rice, wheat, some of the major crops. Okay. So um, we tried to first figure out whether crop yields were increasing or decreasing and what was the amount per, uh, say, county level, and we summarize that up to, say, the national level. So, for example, in the United States, you have maize yields, which have slightly increased due to climate change, but there's lots of variation, as we can expect. And then we continue to do that for a wide variety of crops. So, uh, and each crop provides a certain percentage of uh, crop consumable food calories. And then we finally figured out, like, on the overall summary, what was the effect? So globally, what we found was there is a reduction of 1% of food calories. And if you assume a 1,800 calories per day food requirement for sustenance levels, then we have like uh, the reduction in food for around uh, 50 million people around the world. So in terms of the total calories, um, is there more than enough in the way of calories to to feed the total global population adequately? At present, we do have enough food calories to not only feed the current population, but also the future population. The problem is a lot about distribution of the food. So I don't think that distribution problem is going to go away like tomorrow. So if, say, for example, in southern Africa, in say, Mozambique or Malawi or Zimbabwe, if there is a reduction in crappies, the top crop is, say, corn, maize. So if you have a reduction in uh, the yields every year on average, I don't expect the American farmers to be shipping corn to, uh, I mean, increasing the shipment to, or give them for free. So the reduction in corn yields in Malawi or Mozambique or Zimbabwe reduces the amount of food calories per person in those three countries. And that process kind of is seen in some other countries of the world, like in South Asia. But we also see reductions in Western Europe. We also see reductions in Australia. Both are very rich countries. So they can probably turn around, uh, you know, they will not have that much impact on their food security. They are rich countries, after all. But in poorer countries, southern African countries or South Asian countries, there is an impact, and that impact is not good. Given your perspective, do you recommend uh, changes in crops? That is, we've been growing corn forever, and we should be not 
growing so much corn or corn has done very well with uh, say in the united states or in latin american countries in general minus say mexico uh, so corn has benefited but if you look at between say indiana versus minnesota the way the climate has shifted around in these two places or or in any other country for that matter you can find a another crop which may have benefited so this is a very broader question that needs to be addressed by many groups of people it is like do we want to eat more corn or do we want to eat i mean we don't eat the corn in <laughs> in the united states we feed it to the animals uh, or should we shift to wheat or but wheat also is not doing well maybe we should grow more sorghum and sorghum has done fairly well for you know, with the climate change signal so but then do we want to eat more sorghum or we want to feed more sorghum as feed to animals versus corn these are questions which are not easy to answer so what i wanted to do with our study is try to set up the numbers now we can have a discussion about it what we want to do this is up to the policy makers and the farmers they need to come to some agreement about that the use of uh crop production for animal feeds. Do you have a particular point of view on that? We already have an agricultural system which is very nicely and well placed in the US. It is not easy. You know, the number of farmers in the world is probably like 2 billion farmers. And we cannot just disrupt their current agricultural practices overnight. The One of the motivations of doing this study is like, we get to know what is already happening, so we can prepare for the future. Uh, we can start preparing. Say, in Indiana, the losses in corn, I would say they are fairly substantial already. I've calculated there is a reduction of, say, 11 bushels of corn per acre in Indiana overall. But then within Indiana, if you see in the north, eastern part which is like bordering the lake michigan area those counties have seen a little bit increase in cornings but everywhere else there is a decrease so overall there is a decrease of say 11 bushels of corn per acre now when you feed corn to animals you need to feed like say two pounds of corn to get one pound of broiler chicken meat and you have lots in that process um, because, you know, chicken has bones, it needs to uh, live also. So there's a massive loss in that process. If countries, say, for let's forget about the United States for a bit, say developing countries like, say, India, if they, ha- they have a substantial number of food insecure people, and they also have a substantial number of middle-class people, if the... F- the food and feed system already starts to shift towards supporting, say, middle-income diets, and there's so much of significant losses in the conversion of the grain harvested versus the chicken which you eat. There's a question, like, whether the land would not have been used better to actually grow the rice versus, say, the corn or soybean, which is fed to chicken and uh, reach the you know, United Nations Sustainable Development Goal of food security for all first before trying to support middle-income diet. So there, there is a question over there also, but farmers also need to make profit. So this is a very tricky 
problem. Are the very high temperatures in India, uh, temperatures, I guess, almost up to 120 degrees Fahrenheit, having a, an impact on crop production? It depends upon which season and which crop. So in northwestern India, which is a very important, uh, like the original green revolution state in India, that is where Norman Borlaug first took the wheat seeds and there was a huge increase in wheat crop yields. Wheat is irrigated. It's a, like a winter crop. And even though that area is water insecure, there's lots of irrigation from groundwater. Even though there is lots of increase, you know, extra heat, the irrigation manages to overcome that aspect. So wheat yields have not actually decreased. But then on the other hand, if you look at the rice yields, they have decreased. And then if you look at southern India versus some other part of India, there is a variation. And then, you know that variation you can see in China, United States, even in Europe, Eastern Europe versus Western Europe, and in Africa, Southern Africa versus the Western African countries. So there's lots of variation. But on the whole, there is a reduction globally. One last question, and that is, uh, is there anything you'd like to add that would be useful for our listeners going forward? I think in Indiana, specifically, and places in our you know, central part of the Midwestern counties, farmers need more support, and they need to start preparing for more hotter days in the future. And what I have seen in the trend in our rainfall, like the corn-growing season rainfall and the temperature, the temperature trends are still going up. So they will probably continue to go up even in the future. So they need to have varieties which are adapted for that purpose. They also at the same time need to have varieties which are adapted to a more wetter conditions. And northern part of Indiana is on a trend of more wetter conditions versus central and southern parts of Indiana. So these variations you can figure out if you look at the maps in our publication. And I hope the farmers would be helped to prepare for this. I've been speaking with Dr. Deepak Ray. He's at the University of Minnesota in the Global Landscapes Initiative. And I thank you very much for your very helpful comments. Thank you for having me. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We will provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Please give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now it's time for In Nature. This is In Nature. I'm Kaylin Huffman Brower. This segment of In Nature is about the endangered species, the hellbender. Hellbender, also known as mud devil or mud dog, is the largest aquatic salamander in the United States. Its average size is 12 to 15 inches, but can be as long as 29 inches. It has a flat head, 
wrinkled body, and a paddle-shaped tail. It's usually dark gray or brown with irregular dark spots along the back. They can live up to 50 years in the wild. It's nocturnal and can be found slowly crawling across the bottoms of clear, silt-free mountain streams from south New York across to Indiana and to north Alabama. They feed on crayfish, small fish, tadpoles, toads, and water snakes. They absorb oxygen from the water through their skin. In the daytime, they can be found hiding under rocks on the riverbed. Though some populations remain healthy, the hellbender is listed as endangered in Indiana, mainly due to habitat loss and degradation from pollution. Silting caused by agricultural practices and construction work and damming of rivers and streams eliminates critical riffle areas and lowers oxygen content. Fishermen need to be educated that they are not poisonous. You've been listening to In Nature. And now for some upcoming events. Paintown State Recreation Area will host an event on the life cycle of butterflies this Friday, July 19th. It will meet at the Paintown Activity Center and run from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Participants will learn about butterfly life cycles and be able to make a butterfly-related craft. Brown County State Park will be hosting a birthday party for Smokey Bear this Saturday, July 20th. The event starts at 10 a.m. and runs all day with music, food, and more. The program is intended for all ages. McCormick's Creek State Park will host painter Brian Gordy on Saturday, July 20th for a talk about painting turtles. His work will be displayed at the event and participants will also be able to see some resident turtles as well. The event meets at the Nature Center and goes from 1 to 1.45 p.m. Brown County will host a hike along a creek on Monday, July 22nd. The hike will meet at the Lake Strahl parking area. The naturalist-led program will run from 2 to 3 p.m. and will include wading. Water shoes are recommended, and participants are advised that rocks may be slippery in the creek. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy, Linda Green, and Kaylin Huffman Brower. Today's feature was produced by Norm Holy. Jan Walker produced Get Out and Hike, and Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Sarah Vaughn produced and engineered today's show. Andrew Brown, Sarah Vaughn, and Kaylin Huffman Brower edited the script. 
Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, as well as In Nature, Get Out and Hike, and Secret Life of Fungi episodes anytime at wfhb.org. And for WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Juliana Daly. And this is EcoReport. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth.